Amen. Thank you, guys. Well, good morning again. I'm Trevor Owen. I'm the pastor of spiritual formation here at Hillspring. And uh, you have joined us in the middle of a sermon series roughly breezing through Christian history in, well, like five weeks. And we're in the middle of that today. Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask my friend Corey to come up here with me. Last week it was my beautiful, lovely wife. <laughs> now it is my beautiful, lovely friend. So this timeline represents Christian history. And from the very end of that rope to here, one foot representing 100 years is Abraham to Jesus. So this is where we're at with Jesus, right in the middle. Okay, you can let that go. We're not, we, we didn't talk about that, but yeah, just let it, you can come here and hold this. Sorry, this is volunteers. Uh, <laughs> so this was Jesus to Constantine. This is what we talked about two weeks ago. And it's roughly 300 years. Um, and it was this whole period, Christianity was this personal background movement where there wasn't, I mean, there were, there were churches, but there wasn't this institution and this structure. And then last week we talked about how Constantine came and he, he basically made Christianity part of the empire. And they started to form institutions and big churches and hierarchy and structure and kind of started to get involved in that. And the, the period from Constantine to what we're going to talk about today is the great schism between the East and the West. And we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But this is a period of roughly 700 years. And we're, we're going to talk today, and, you know, right around this time also, you know, we had the Inquisition and, you know, the Crusades and all the really Jesus-y things that happened in the past. And we'll talk about that today. And we're going to go next week to Martin Luther and the Reformation. And then after that, John Wesley and personal holiness. And then from John Wesley to Hillspring. And from Hillspring to today give or take half an inch. All right, now you can put it down. Thanks, Corey. Good job. So we're going to try and do about 700 years in about 25, 30 minutes. Usually goes longer than that, but somewhere in that range. And we're going to talk about what happens as the church becomes institutionalized. Where we left it off last week, you know, Christianity had been sort of accepted by the Roman Empire. It eventually moved into being the predominant religion. And then this thing happens in 467 AD. Does anybody want to take a guess? History buffs. The fall of Rome. Awesome. We should hang out and talk. Anyway, 467, Rome falls to a bunch of barbarian hordes, more or less. Um, but it's more complicated than that. It doesn't really matter. But basically, the people of Rome kind of start joining with these hordes and overthrow the whole empire. But here's the thing. As these hordes come in, they start becoming Christian. They, they, they sort of leave their pagan religions. And of course, there's a little bit of mixing and matching and adding and taking away and stuff. 
But these, these barbarian hordes, by and large, become Christian. And they get really excited about this Jesus character. And this Jesus character does some weird things, like he likes women. Who knew? And there's, there starts to be some value given to the plebs, the people who meant nothing before. And, and there starts to be some, some, you know, emphasis on actually like education and learning and study and keeping records. And you start to see Christianity over the next handful of centuries transform these barbarian warlike hordes into, well, Germans. <laughs> and the French. Now well, they weren't there yet, right? You know, the Goths and the Franks and so on and so forth. But... They start transforming, Christianity starts transforming these people. Now in the meantime, so you've got Rome, and the thing about Rome is the church then, because it has all this influence, really holds the empire together. It's different, it changes, eventually becomes the Holy Roman Empire. But, but the church becomes the center thing that ties them together. And at the same time, it was the main thing that tied the Roman church with the Eastern church, which was Constantinople and Antioch and Jerusalem and, and uh, Alexandria. So you had sort of this divide. You had the Western part that had fallen to the hordes, and you had the Eastern part that were all the elite and the intelligent and the longstanding, and we have all the authority. And Christianity was this bridge between them. And in 650 AD, give or take, there's this um, new threat that arises out of the Middle East. Anybody want to guess what that is? Islam. So about 650 AD, Islam comes to power, and they come soaring through the Middle East and just pillaging and taking control and battling on the Eastern Front, and they sack and, and basically destroy Jerusalem. Well, not destroy, but... Um, take power over Jerusalem and Alexandria and Antioch. And these former places that were like the heartbeat of Christianity are now in Muslim hands. Which means there's two main centers for Christian influence in the world, Constantinople and Rome. All exciting? You tracking with me so far? Now, what happens when you have two major power players in a small pond? They get along great. <laughs> They're best of friends. Oh, yeah. No, you start to see some tension developing between the East and the West. And there's more or less, they get along okay. But, you know, they're very different from each other. First of all, they're jewelry. I mean, you all wear crosses, right? Go ahead and look at your cross. Looks like that, right? Well, but not if you were from the East. Your cross looked like this. And still does to this day. If you were from an Eastern Christian tradition, you would wear that cross. The fact that you're from, you know, a Latin tradition means you wear this one. But of course, that's semantics, right? That's the little symbols and imagery. There's a ton of other major differences that start to creep in. Uh, first of all, if you were from the West, 
and you were going to be a priest, you had to be celibate. You couldn't get married. And you couldn't sleep with anybody, supposedly. Not that that ever happened, but you know what I mean. And so the priesthood was a celibacy. Whereas if you were in the East, you didn't have to. And there was these big debates and discussions about why that was the case. And we don't need to get into it, but, you know, sex is exciting, so we always talk about it. The other thing that was happening in the, in the West was they started saying, well, we can use bread with yeast in it. Like, we don't need to use unleavened bread. And in the, and in the East, they were going, well, no, 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 we can't do that. And so there was this arguing and this fighting over communion. And then in addition to that, in, in, the, in the West, they started to talk about having a pope who was in charge and had authority over all the church. And the pope kind of got his, you know, little big boy pants on and said, I'm in charge of everything in Christendom. And in Constantinople, they had what they called a patriarch. And the patriarch wasn't a pope. The patriarch was a spiritual leader of the Eastern Church who was appointed by the emperor in the East particularly in Constantinople. And he was like, well, no, you can't tell us what to do. We're, we're all equal before God. And we all wrestle out these differences together. The problem was, fast forward a little bit, and we're near the 800s, a little before it. And in response to Islam and all their different things that they were worried about, the East said, you know what, we need to get rid of icons. Does anybody know what an icon is? And I'm not talking about Windows. <laughs> or Apple. I don't play with Apple, so it's, I think Windows. <laughs> it's an object of worship. Kind of looks like this. Now, why would you have icons back in the day? Because people couldn't read. The masses didn't speak or couldn't read the language. Most of them were illiterate. And most of the church services were in Latin. So just like if I was talking Latin to you, which I can't do, how much are you going to get out of that? Not much, particularly if you're, you know, Germanic or Frank or whatever. And so they had these icons. But then in the East, they said, you know what? Honestly, we need to just focus on Jesus and not the images. We're not supposed to make any images of God. That's the second commandment. So we're going to go ahead and, and tell all Christianity to destroy him. And the West said, uh, no, 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 we're not doing that. But there was this huge bit of tension between them over how do you worship God and how do you communicate him? Things are turbulent. And here's the thing that's really interesting to me. There is no time in recorded history where Christianity had more authority, influence, and power than this period of time. You get up to around 800 AD and Pope Leo III crowned Charlemagne king of the Holy Roman Empire. Actually, supposedly by surprise. Charlemagne is kneeling at the altar praying to God and Pope Leo just comes up and places a crown on his head and he's like, oh, me? And then immediately releases an entire new currency that he apparently made up on the spot. But the church 
has more influence, more power, and more control in the world than at any other time in history. Literally, they named the empire the Holy Roman Empire because it was run by the church. How holy was it? You see, I think you have to be incredibly careful putting Jesus' names to worldly power structures. We're going to talk about some of the atrocities of that in a minute. But there is a tremendous power in saying God wills it. This is what God desires. And using that to get people to do stuff. And here's the reason. Because you give people the moral high ground. God wills it. It doesn't matter what else you do. And you start to see how these institutions realize I can leverage the church to get my work done and I can put it in God's name and so then everything is fine. Christianity has this tremendous power and influence. But somehow it gets totally, completely looking different than anything Jesus ever did. You see, at this point in time in the East, with Charlemagne and all this, the papacy, the the position of Pope, uh, becomes something that you bargain for and, and get appointed to. So at this period of time, if you wanted to be Pope, all you had to do was pay the right amount of money and get backed by the right families and the right people, and you would buy the papacy. And then you were the official spokesperson for God on the earth. And all it had to do with how popular you were and how much money you gave. And so you see crazy things going on with families fighting and and people coming to power and being pope for two years and then getting executed or kicked out and then somebody else comes to power and they're for like five years and, and they're arguing and they're overturning each other's edict. No, God didn't say that to that guy. God said this to this guy. And well, you got this amazing story in about 900 A.D., Well, there's this Pope Formosus who comes in and he's kind of one family in one camp and has all these rules and ideas and he starts passing all these regulations and stuff. And then he gets overthrown by an angry, well, voted out, God's will changed. And another Pope comes into power and he starts changing things. And then a third Pope comes into power and he really doesn't like the things that the former guy Formosus changed. And Formosus is dead at this point. But, you know, when the Pope says, it's God's will. So the only way to prove that he's not Pope anymore and his will wasn't right is to, well, prove that he wasn't the right guy speaking for God. And so you have to put him on trial. So in around 900 AD, you have this. The Cadaver Synod. And in the name of Jesus, they drug up, dug up this dead guy's body, who'd been dead for seven months, dressed him in his holy robes, and put him on trial. They even appointed an attorney for him, who apparently was not very enthusiastic. And they did a week-long trial 
on this pope, decried him a heretic, cut off the three fingers that you would use for blessing, decapitated him, and buried him outside of the city walls. God wills it. These crazy, crazy times. And in the midst of all of this, right, the East and the West are still arguing over who has the authority. And the, and the Pope that it, it was in Rome was kind of flexing his muscles a little bit. And Constantinople, I mean, they were, they were the East. They were the, they'd been, you know, in power and authority for millennium and it's constant, uh, like, um, sense of being, and I mean, they were the elite. They were the ones that, well, weren't barbarian tribes. That's kind of interesting. One of the things that the, the, the Eastern Church described of the Western Church is they're those barbarian war, bloodthirsty kind of people who literally baptize their children in the spit of wolves. I don't know how you collect that much. By the way, we're going to have a baptism on August 14th here. There will not be wolf spit involved. <laughs> but if you are interested in being baptized, come talk to me. It'll be different than this. But the East sort of looks at them as these war, bloodthirsty, crazy barbarians. By the way, that's your history. If you're wearing the cross without the three things, you're from barbarians. And at the same time, the West looks at the East as those soft, kind of hypocritical, rich people that sit on their high horse and just think they have it all figured out. And of course, they speak Greek and we speak Latin and there's this huge tension. And then in 1054 AD, it's the start of the Great Schism. Is anybody familiar with the term the filioque? Probably not. It's not a standard, uh, you know, public school teaching thing. You see, up until this point, everybody, both sides of the East and West, held to the Nicene Creed, which was a statement of who God was and who Jesus was. Well, at some point in you know, a little before 1054, it depends, several centuries before it kind of floated in and out. In the West, they added a Latin phrase to the Nicene Creed. You see, in the East, they would say this. We believe in the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father. Well, in the, in the, in the West, you had this problem with the Arians and some different heresies, and so they added in to clarify who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now, that, the, and the Son is the word filioque. And so they added this phrase in. Well, the East, when it was presented to them, the patriarchs sent over a delegation that said, you don't have the authority to change what a, what a creed or what a, a Nicene council has decreed as our creed. That sounded bad. But anyway, you Pope don't have the power to change this. And the Pope went, I'm God's representative on earth. I can change whatever I want. And I bought my spot. Minus the last part. And so they said, no, you need, you need to not, you need to stop doing this. And so in response, like all good, adult, responsible people, 
the Pope in the West sent a delegation to go and meet and talk with them. And they showed up to talk with them, and they said, we told you what we're going to do. I mean, I'm drastically oversimplifying this, but we're told you what you need to do, do it. And they went, all right, fine. And they wrote an edict of excommunication. And in the middle of one of their church services in the Hagia Sophia, one of the biggest churches in the East, they marched in, they excommunicated the entire Eastern church. You are outside of the will of God. Be gone, heathens. And so, of course, not knowing what to do, the East went, well, fine, we don't like you either. Go away, you're excommunicated. And they put, cut off Christian relations. For the last thousand years, the church in the West and the church in the East have not spoken, which is why not a single person in here has an Eastern Orthodox cross. And odds are why in Constantinople and Turkey, no Christian would wear a Latin cross. God wills it. You see, the problem is, it wasn't just about the theology. It was about the power. It was about the authority. Who had the right to choose and decide to do what? And honestly, I would argue that almost every single major problem in Christianity has very little to do with Jesus and has to do with were we insulted, do we have the control, do we have the power, do we get to be right? And I would argue that almost every single church split from that point on and every single disagreement within churches boils down to that. And yet how quickly we say, but that's what God wants. So therefore I have to do that. So we're going to leave the Eastern Church alone for a while. Shortly after this, there's an invention that happened in about 1000 AD that transformed the world, particularly in the West. It was cutting edge, absolutely amazing technology that transformed society. Anybody want to guess what it is? Printing press, a little later. Bow and arrow was earlier. Nah, guillotine came later, and that was fun, but it was a little different. <laughs> now it was this. Have a picture of that? The heavy plow. It was the newest, greatest technology. And all of a sudden, you could plow through the grass and create deep furrows and turn over the weeds and provide places for the grain to grow. And there was this huge economic boom in Western Europe. Relative stability because of the church. And all of a sudden, people started to get rich and population was growing like crazy. But you had, these were like barbarian warring tribes. Like they proved their identity through their warfare and, you know, knights and shining armor and all this. It created this huge problem because now you got all these kids that are popping up in these different areas and they're warring with each other because they're bored. And the Pope is like, this is causing problems. So he tries like, all right, we'll excommunicate anybody who goes to war without unjust cause. And, you know, 
piece of Christ and different stuff. And then something happens in 1100 AD. The Islam groups that had been holding Jerusalem had been really friendly, more or less, to the Holy Land tour pilgrims. People who showed up, paid a bunch of money, saw the holy sites. They were worth a ton of money. But they weren't radical enough, and another group of Islamic people from Turkey took over, the Turkish. And they started slaughtering anybody who didn't agree with Islam. It took them about 20 years to figure out they also cut off all their money support, and so changed. But they started slaughtering pilgrims. And all of a sudden, the Pope had this brilliant idea. We need to rescue Jerusalem. We got all these extra people. We got all this like tension and war and economic prosperity and different things going on. We need to go rescue Jerusalem. God wills it. Deus fault. And so he calls for a crusade. In 1097, 130,000 people, give or take, march out of the West on their way to Jerusalem. 15,000 of them make it and conquer Jerusalem. There's actually nine crusades that happen over the next couple hundred years. This was the only one that was marginally successful. And of course, the Pope promised, hey, if you do this in God's name, man, it doesn't matter if you die, you're going immediately to heaven. This erases all your bad deeds for all time. Go and God wills it. And so horrible things happen. The entire, basically the entire population of Jerusalem is slaughtered. In the name of Jesus. There's a movie out. Well, it's old. It's, well, Kingdom of Heaven. With Orlando Bloom when he was just a young pup. And there's a scene in that movie I want to play. It's about a minute long. But I think it's pretty fascinating. Can we show that? And Reynaud de Chatillon, with the Templars, have attacked a Saracen caravan. No! It was no caravan. It was an army headed for Bethlehem to desecrate the birthplace of our Lord. Reynaud, with the Templars, have broken the king's pleasure of peace. Saladin will come into this kingdom. Tiberius knows more than a Christian should about Saladin's intentions. That I would rather live with men than kill them is certainly why you are alive. That sort of Christianity has its uses, I suppose. We must not go to war with Saladin. We do not want it. And you may not win it. Blasphemy! Blasphemy! An army of Jesus Christ which bears his holy cross cannot be beaten. Does the Count of Tiberius suggest that it could be? There must be war. God wills it! Deus fault. God wills it. I think those are some of the most dangerous words spoken. So over the next several hundred years, there are, like I said, about nine different crusades launched. The fourth one 
is what finally drove a nail between the east and the west. They went on a crusade to the Holy Land and got to Constantinople and instead of heading south to Jerusalem just decided to go ahead and take control of Constantinople. And they attacked their Christian brothers and friends who were providing them aid, sacked the city, tried to put their own pope in power, pretty much ended any possibility of friendship and reconciliation. Shortly after that, you had the children's crusade where this guy named Stefan, who was a shepherd boy, had a holy vision that God was going to deliver Jerusalem through children and raised an army, an unarmed army, of 50,000 kids, marched them through Western Europe down to Spain, expecting God to part the sea. When the seas didn't part, they got on a bunch of boats. Those boats then sailed to North Africa and sold 50,000 children into slavery. God wills it. Following all of this, well, once you have power, you have to make sure that you maintain power. And the way, if Christianity is the lifeblood of the, the area and the glue that holds it all together, heretics become a massive threat to the empire. And so when there's heretics, what do you do? You launch an inquisition. And for 200 years, the church sought out anybody who didn't agree with them and put them on trial originally to reform them and bring them back, but then they started to realize, you know, if we kill these people and confiscate their property, we get richer. And tens of thousands of people, a bunch of them Jewish, are persecuted, slaughtered. Not a whole lot burned at the stake, some. That was overblown by the Protestants later. But killed. And the name of God. Here's the place where this gets personal. There is a lot of talk in our country right now about what God wills. There is a rising movement of Christian nationalism that says we should be a nation that God rules and sets all the rules for. We pass all the laws that make life happen like God wants it. Now I'm not saying that everything that happened in these ages were bad. I mean, education reform, empowerment of women, uh, healthcare, universities, scientific study, all of this was carried on by the Christian church and the organizations that were empowered. Those were beautiful, good things. And there's beautiful, good things that are happening in our country that we're fighting for. But we need to be incredibly suspicious of anybody who says we need to do this because God wills it and even more suspicious of any politician that does it. Because the power structures of our world are not Jesus' tools for bringing his transformation and salvation to people. Francis of Assisi in 1300 AD was a monk who wanted to reject all of that. We quoted him occasionally because he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel, but only if necessary, use words. 
but he wrote this prayer. He said, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, it is in dying that we are born again to eternal life. The work of Jesus is in your heart and in how you treat others. The evidence of the Spirit is not huge cathedrals and castles and armies that defend the cross of Christ. God is actually very rarely interested in defending his name, which is really sad, because sometimes I wish he would. The work of Jesus is in the changing of hearts, and the hallmark of the Spirit are things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And we should not listen to people who say God wills it that don't demonstrate that. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. God's will is your transformation and transformation of our world through your love for it. And with that, I invite the worship team to come forward. I would say that I'm like worked up and sweaty, but I can see you fanning yourselves too. So obviously it's. We need to be really careful to let the kingdom of heaven be the kingdom of heaven and not cloak our power structures and the things that we want in the words of God. And we need to do that on a political sense and we need to do that on a personal sense. I'm betting half of the counseling that I do with people around spiritual issues has to do with someone at some point telling them this is what God wanted you to do that had nothing to do with God. We need to hold that very carefully. And so in that, in that vein, as we come into this last song, um, let's give our hearts to God. Ask him to bring holiness into us and help us live that love into the world.